Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome back to the Mind Valley podcast. Our guest today is the legendary Jason Silva. The genius mind behind that hit YouTube series, Shots of Awe. I got Jason on stage at Mind Valley's AFES in Bali. The topic was envisioning your bold future. And Jason just knocked it out of the ballpark. So this conversation today on the Mind Valley podcast is going to be a little bit unusual. We're not going to go into strict personal growth. Rather, what Jason is going to do is expand your mind to the possibilities of where human civilization is evolving into and your role within this realm of possibilities. And this is just a really fascinating conversation, folks, but it is not on one topic. It's very different from my usual podcast. We are going to jump around because Jason's mind is just frenetic like that. But this is the reason why he's so loved and has millions of fans. We'll be talking about why and how cinema can help expand your conscious evolution. You will learn about consciousness modulating substances that induce flow states, productivity, and increase problem-solving ability. You will also learn how Jason's anxiety of human mortality drives the direction of his work. Overall, this conversation is just total mindfuck, and I think you're going to gain a lot out of it. So enjoy this episode. You might want to listen to it twice, and welcome to the brilliant, bizarre, curious mind of Jason Silva. Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. You said up here on stage that we are ever more responsible for our fates. Mm. Technology could be good or could be bad. Yeah. And no I wanted to ask you how do we cultivate the part of us that is responsible for those choices so that we keep up as the exponential growth goes, that yeah. this part can hold yeah. this part and we don't just go. Yeah, 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 no doubt. Well, one thing that I should tell you, and maybe this made sense for those that know me, the order of the content I showed today reflects the last three years of my own creative evolution. From the messaging and the videos, from the first one to the last one, that's like from three years ago to two months ago. And so you see in the beginning an exuberance and an excitement for first discovering this capacity that we have to create tools and overcome our limits. And I was like, wow, we can fly. And that exuberance eventually led to this idea of like transhumanity and the singularity. But then the whole redefined billionaire is like, oh, well, we have to help each other too, right? So that came up, you know, and I had to address it and internalize that. And then that turned into a video. And then eventually, you know, this thing with flow and awe and the awe I've revisited, but this last video I showed in particular was the necessity of sort of submitting the total surrender on my own difficulty with that and flow and awe i think speak to this thing about mental health and this new world is going to require new minds and so personal development and the work that maps is doing with psychedelic psychotherapy and johns hopkins university with psilocybin like this is the most exciting thing on the planet right now and people shouldn't mistake the fact that these tools these psychedelics they're technologies 
They're technologies of ecstasy. That's what they are. And shamans are ecstatic technicians of the sacred. We've always used our tools to solve problems. The tools can be magic fungi or a hammer. I think a mistake we make, though, with certain tools is that if you hold a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if you're holding a psychedelic mushroom, every problem looks like it can be fixed with psychedelics. <laughs> and that's not the case either. You know, I don't advocate the free and crazy, reckless use of these tools at all. Every tool has its place, and we should be very discerning in our usage of said tools. Nonetheless, it's a very exciting space. And I think, yeah, absolutely. Like, we need to address the pathologies of anxiety and depression and purpose that people are feeling because part of the anxiety about technology is we're going to lose our jobs, we're going to lose our purpose. Like, what do we do? What's the future? What do we want to create? And all of these things require to look within, not just to look without. The new space is inner space, definitely. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I love that. I love that. It's the way that you talk about technology. And reframe what technology is is very powerful. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to go for our first question, and then I'm going to bring Vishen up to the stage. Hey, thank you very much. My name is David. Thank you so much for mentioning and talking about virtual reality, which ah. is since the very first moment I put a VR headset on, I have been obsessed with creating technology to help people get that awe. Mm -hmm. And the biggest problem that I come up with in my company in our development lab is accessing that awe because it feels like the hardware and the coding is not in sync. And do you have an opinion or an yeah. idea about how soon and yeah. how you keep talking about exponential? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But with VR, it feels like, <laughs> I'm like, no, why know. is this so hard? And why is this taking so long? And it's really, you're the second person on that stage that had talked about VR. And I, I just kept thinking to myself, oh God, I'm yeah. right in where I belong. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. thank you once again for that. And if you could give us any- sure more information. I think it's obviously in its very, 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 very early stages. I personally, I'm not really a fan of most headsets. I can't stand the low resolution. I can't stand how tight they feel on my forehead. I think the storytelling isn't there. We haven't really developed the rules yet. You know, it took us a hundred years to get cinema right because it's not just the technology, it's the artistry of how to use the technology to tell sublime stories. Now, virtual reality already exists. Rather, the reality of the virtual, whether it's just our names and identities, our geography, our nationality, our religion, these are all virtual realities. They become real because we believe in them by consensus. And then there's like the virtual realities that we're aware of, like theater and movies. I still think cinema is the most powerful virtual reality technology of the sacred that exists. I think a film done right is better than a religious experience in some ways because it's reproducible. You can watch it. It's been recorded. You can show it to somebody else. You know, a film can change the world. Cinema is truth 24 times per second. I don't think that's the case yet for the helmets, the VR helmets. Although there is a VR film called Dear Angelica that kind of blew my mind, actually, and I think is a glimpse of what can happen. I mean, that felt kind of like a psychedelic dreamscape, love letter, storytelling, experience of being inside of someone else's mind. It reminded me of Terrence McKenna, his whole idea that the future of intimacy will be heightened by virtual reality. Because right now, if I want to show you my insides, I maybe bring you to my room or I show you the books that I've written, the posters I like, the movies I like, to give you a glimpse of what's it like inside. But with virtual reality reaches its full potential, I'll actually be able to invite you in my mind. Like I'll actually be able to bring you into an ontologically real space that is indistinguishable from this, but that's in my mind, right? And imagine the kind of intersubjectivity that will be made possible to feel someone else's pain, to feel someone else's suffering, and how we can use that to extend compassion around the world. 
But even now we're seeing the beginnings of it, right? There was a virtual reality film shot in a Syrian refugee camp. And then they brought it to the United Nations and showed it all these diplomats. And of course they were immensely moved. And I don't know how much it moved the needle, but you saw the potential. There's a lot of billions of dollars being invested in it. Unfortunately, sometimes these innovations are fueled first by the adult film industry. <laughs> so it happened with DVDs and all these other technologies. People want pleasure first in the virtual space. But there's enough, I think, storytelling genius in there working really hard to come up with the frameworks, the rules of said storytelling. A book that I recommend by Janet Murray is called Hamlet on the Holodeck. It's a marvelous meditation on the precursors for presence, which is the term used in VR for when it works. Presence is when you're there, when you accept the mediated world, when you're not cognizant of the fact that you're in a mediated world, but the chatter is quiet and you're just there. Immersion is a prerequisite for it. Immersion is a form of attention envelopment. And one of the problems we have today is that we're in a very distracted age. And so people's attentions are fractured. So we need to cultivate a capacity to be fully attentive. The best movies make us fully attentive. The best conversations do it too. When we're trying to multitask, we're not really multitasking. We're just doing a bunch of different things badly. So I think that the VR, the hardware is advancing exponentially. So is the software. Our creativity needs to match the hardware and the software and get us to a place where we can really make some magic for sure. I remain optimistic. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to tag up with Vision. He's going to continue the conversation. So Jason, while we're waiting for questions to come in, my big question for you is, you spoke about Jamie Wheel. You spoke mm. about Stephen Kotler. Mm -hmm. They write about altered states. Are you on any altered state inducing substances when you create those videos? It's <laughs> a good question. The truth and, and is... You, and you can be honest. This oh, isn't yeah. going to go anywhere outside this room except on YouTube Internet, and my right, Valley podcast. Right. It's all good. I spend most of my time in California, so the tools that I use are perfectly legal in California. Yeah, no, I've had a very interesting relationship with cannabis and creativity, probably since I was like 16. I did a lot of research and reading afterwards to try to unpack what it did to my mind. And what I learned actually is that cannabis has a history of being used in improvisational arts and improvisational creativity. Jazz has an intertwined history with cannabis because it's an improvisational art form. Freestyle rap also is very, very tightly connected to cannabis. And I even did research on why this is the case. And it's because cannabis boosts associational thinking and increases lateral thinking. The naturally occurring endogenous version of cannabis is called anandamide, which is one of our neurotransmitters. And it's a Sanskrit word for internal contentment. But because cannabis boosts associational lateral thinking, it increases the range of associations that you create when you are riffing, when you're coming up with ideas. Lateral thinking essentially increases. So normally when you prime, when you have associational thinking, like if I tell you bird, the immediate associations, the ripple effects are like wings, maybe flight, characteristics that you associate with bird. When you're the right amount of high on cannabis, you go into a kind of hyper priming. So what happens is when you think about a bird, you're more elastic in your associations. You expand your associative net. And so you might think of birds, you might think of wings, and then you might think of like the ways in which we transcend our limitations. You just make a bigger leap in your associations, which that's essentially what poetry is. And so I think that's the reason why poetic rhapsody is associated with altered states of consciousness and why so many poets used to cultivate altered states in order to allow the creativity to emerge. It comes through you, but not from you. And though it is with you, it belongs not to you. 
So our responsibility is not to script what's going to come out, but to set the stage, to cultivate the atmosphere, just like a flame requires certain ingredients so that it can light up. And I think that cannabis, for me at least, the judicious and moderate use with intention in the right environment increases suggestibility and reactivity to signals from within and from without. So I could put myself in certain environments and I could induce certain reverie. I could reflect upon that reverie. And then there was this compulsion to transcribe and integrate. And that eventually led to this desire to record myself, which is a form of journaling. And that's really the genesis of what this became, these videos. And then when I read all these studies about freestyle rappers and jazz musicians doing fMRI scans on their brain and realizing that when they were in flow, the part of the brain responsible for self-editing and the inner critic was actually shut down, I realized, oh, wow, so maybe what it is is that cannabis is facilitating for me flow. And then I spoke to Stephen Kotler, who knows all about the neuroscience of flow, and he's like, oh, my God, yeah, that's called a hippie speedball. Yeah, a hippie speedball is the combination of 20 minutes of aerobic exercise, an espresso shot, and a joint. And I was like, isn't that fascinating? And so what's kind of cool now that cannabis is normalized in California and Canada and all these places is that we can actually talk about, oh, yeah, this is cool. Just like people like double espresso to get some work done in the morning, like that you can really, especially in creative fields, for problem solving where out-of-the-box thinking is required, that this is a pretty useful tool. And certainly it has been for me, but I'm not a proselytizer. I just, I'm just honest. And, you know, Kotler said that you can really use this for productivity, but the reason there's this association, and again, I'm not advocating or not advocating it, but at the last day fest, when Kotler was speaking, somebody asked him, well, then why, why is it that we have these images of people smoking weed and then sitting in front of Netflix and eating Cheetos? Sure. And he goes, you know where that comes from? Pre-framing. Because for most Americans, the first time you smoke a joint, it's in college. Right. And what do you do with yeah. your buddies in college? You, you Cheetos. After smoking a joint, you eat Cheetos and play computer games yeah. or watch television. So yeah. you are programming yourself. 100%. And one of the key insights about any consciousness modulating agent is that these substances are extraordinarily resonant with set and setting. This guy, David Lenson, who wrote a book about altered states, says that consciousness is essentially a collaboration between subject and object. And so if you want to come up with an equation to design a mental state, it's person multiplied by place, multiplied by time, multiplied by substance, which reveals a garden of forking paths of possible conscious experiences. So it's really like an equation. It's like, what do you want to create? I'm like, okay, well, I want to go to the Scottish Highlands and like have be around castles. And I want to combine that with like classical music and my noise canceling headphones. And then I want to have some cannabis to increase my suggestibility and reactivity to those signals that I've pre-constructed so I can create a particular subjective experience for myself. And then afterwards, I'll have plenty of material to reflect upon. So it's a way of like stewarding the internal structures of consciousness, right? Stewarding internal life. And I think the better we get at doing that, the more agency we feel like we have because we can design our own experiences. And that's a kind of art. So the next question, Jason, is this, right? One of the things that I love about you and I observe in those videos is that you really freestyle this. Yeah. Is this coming to you in the moment? Yes. Have you scripted it out? No. Are those quotes directly etched in your brain? Yeah. Are you referencing any quote cards? No. No. What's going on in Jason's brain? 100% freestyle. Typically, I'll have had an experience with a friend somewhere in nature. There'll have been some serious exchanges, insights. There's been like a download or two. And then I'm in this afterglow. And that's when I want to reflect upon what's happening. And in the afterglow, the exuberance and the mania has subsided a little bit and you really want to talk, but then the range of associations that seems to emerge is expanded. So what you're doing is you're riding a butterfly effect in thought. 
And I think that the muscle there is to simultaneously let that butterfly effect and associations happen, but keep it coherent and be able to rein it in, you know, send that kite into the wind, but then like rein it in. And that I think is the muscle. That's an amazing gift. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like this Venn diagram between discipline and surrender, like complete, complete surrender hurls you into chaos. You're wiping out and drowning under the wave. And then too much discipline is atrophying, you know, it's like, you know, but in the middle is flow, which toes the line between chaos and order. That's flow. That's the state of consciousness in which we feel our best and we perform our best. And I've just literally found an outlet to verbally vomit my flow. Can you teach people how to verbally vomit this flow in the sense of, okay, for those of you who are writers, think about how cool this would be if you were writing a book, right? Being able to just make those words flow or coder or programmer or anyone who's an artist. Is this something that you can teach people? Yeah, for sure. My mom is an English teacher. She teaches high school literature and has for 40 years. And she used to do this amazing experiment back in high school where she'd have you take a pen and paper and start writing without being able to put the pen down for five minutes straight. And what are like half the students are like, I don't know what to write about, teacher. Like, what do we write about? And she's like, it doesn't matter. If you don't know what to write, then write. I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write until something occurs to you. You can't put the pen down. And so what that does, I believe, is it forces you into doing the free association because you can't second guess and you can't stop yourself and you can't start thinking about what you want to say. Just start doing it. And if you're lucky, then you kind of fall into that trance where all of a sudden the chatter dissipates and you're just going with it. You know, you're in that zone. And the fact that I even remember that exercise from like 20 years ago is because I always thought that was so interesting. It's like, oh, because I've always been into video. I'm a decent writer, but with video, I think faster than I can write. And so when I was in high school, we used to host these salons. And part of the fun of these salons, once we got into this happy zone, was to put the camera on each other and interrogate each other. And, you know, the camera makes you very self-conscious, but it also can focus you because it's like, okay, well, this is being recorded. So what do you actually think? So now you have to think about what you think. And when you think about what you think using language, that can really loosen up the mind. And speaking of salons, now that's something you do. And I found the idea fascinating. And I know many great artists, such as the whole Impressionist revolution, right, came from these men who would gather in cafes in Barcelona and have these salons. And you're doing this. Tell us about the salon methodology. Like, what's going on there? Well, I fell in love with this idea. You guys ever heard of the notion of a sunken living room? Or this notion of designing a space that's circular or a square space where couches and chairs are all facing each other so that people are forced to engage so that everywhere you look, you're engaging with somebody. And I think salons kind of work that way. They make everybody face one another in a space in which it's conducive to conversations. And then you're introducing maybe music or an intoxicant of choice to loosen cognition. And it's funny because very quickly you enter a kind of trance that is a shared intersubjective space where you're bouncing ideas off of other people. And that's, I think, a huge thing because when you're into the intersubjective space, you're having a common experience with somebody else. So you're not just in your head. They're not just in their head. Now it's like this space between that opens up. And that's like a beautiful thing because that's when like, oh my God, that's when you feel understood and you actually feel like you understand others. And it's like new ideas are forged. And you're like, that's when it's like, oh my God, you changed my life, bro. Like I've learned so much from you or you learned so much from me or whatever it may be. So salon culture, it can cultivate really powerful, like intersubjective experiences. And we all crave that because we all crave connection. So I think the salon architecture works really well to cultivate connections, sitting around the campfire, you know? So this is a question from Butterscotch. So Butterscotch is a world-class performer who's here in our audience. And Butterscotch asks, when was the first time you experienced flow when making videos or public speaking? 
How different is it for you with cannabis versus without? When I do public lectures, there's no cannabis and it feels the same because the stage and you guys heightens the feeling of presence and I'm forced to think about what I think out loud. So it's aperture focuses, you know, it's instant flow. The precursors are very important to rest well the night before, to eat well. You have to cultivate your energy so that you can meet the occasion when required. The first part of the question was one of the first time with videos. Yeah, yeah when was I was like first? 16. So when I was 16, we used to host the salons and we used to film ourselves. And what would happen often is I was pretty timid and I'm kind of an introvert. And most social situations make me uncomfortable because the music's too loud and people don't actually talk to each other. So I'm better in like smaller groups and when there's quiet. And I remember, so we used to host these salons in my house so I could be the benevolent dictator. I would pick people that I liked and that were interesting and nice and no bad vibes allowed. Sorry, just no bad vibes allowed. And we would film each other, we would make videos and ask questions. And when I would watch the content later, it was like I recognized myself, but I didn't really recognize myself. And there was something like this feeling of like, Oh, I could be that guy. You know, like that guy's not afraid. That guy's not like stuck in his head. That guy's like embodied and like living his truth. And there was a mirroring effect where I aspired to be who I was when I wasn't there. <laughs> and that's what recording okay. these things taught me. That's really cool. Now, speaking of the mirroring effect, I remember when you and I were hanging out in San Fran a few weeks ago eating Pakistani food. Delicious. You by the mentioned way. the concept of peopling. Yeah. I thought that was like mind blowing. Yeah, Share yeah. that idea of peopling. So this article was about how we communicate with other people. And it comes from this notion of the looking glass self. And one of the hallmarks of this line is, I am not who I think I am. And I am not who you think I am. I am who I think that you think I am. And this is what's going on because when we communicate, we're mentally modeling each other automatically and at all times. And so the illustration that they used in this article on peopling was, so here's Alice and here's David. And inside of Alice is a little model of who David is inside of Alice's interpretation. And inside of the David inside of Alice, there's a little Alice of who Alice thinks that David thinks that Alice is. And the same thing in Alice's brain. She has a circle of David and inside the circle of David, a circle of Alice. Anyway, there's this granularity that's almost infinite that's happening where we're modeling each other and then modeling what we think the other is thinking of us and aspiring to be that person. And that's how we connect. Like, am I who you think I am? Oh, okay, now we're communicating for better or worse. You know, some people say, well, that means we're not being authentically ourselves. I'm like, yeah, but we don't exist were it not for a witness who lets us know that we exist is what this theory is. In isolation, we go schizo immediately. So we need to be mentally modeling each other to coax us into ourselves through these mutual mental modeling relationships. Kind of like when you plug a video camera into the TV and then you aim the camera at the TV, it's infinite recursion. That's kind of how consciousness works. Godel Escher Bach in his famous book said that essentially the brain is like a hard drive that stores models that mirror the world. So we have a hard drive and it has a simulation of the world. And within the simulation of the world, when the model gets complete enough, it includes a simulation of the world that includes the observer that's making the observation. And it is in that inevitable vortex of self-mirroring that a real causal eye or a sentient mind emerges. So we are feedback loops. So does that mean we are different people 
two different people. Yes, absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. And that's why it's very confusing to cross those streams. Like when you bring your girlfriend to meet your parents for the first time. The reason that's stressful is because you're a different person to your parents to to your girlfriend. You're a different person with your brother. You're a different person with your best friend. So you're introducing your best friend to your cousin. And it's like, I... Yeah, our my relation, you know, it's confusing because different parts of ourselves emerge in different contextual situations. That's wild, man. Yeah. So here's a question from Rajesh Shetty. So Rajesh is in the audience. If you get to meet him, brilliant man, started seven companies in Silicon Valley, wrote seven books. Wow. He's from India. And he says, what insight from all of your work do you consider the most transformational and why? I suppose that we're not doomed, that fatalism is wrong. You know, you're into the anti-aging kick and the singularity and the biotechnology. I mean, it's like when you really look at what we can do, right? When you look at airplanes taking off against the wind and flying through the sky, when you make a FaceTime call and you're like, okay, like this in real time is taking my voice and my face and turning it into signals and going into the device and thinking into space and reaching the other planet and then a billion times a day, like thoughts being shared. And I, I mean, it's, I think the biggest insight of all is that like we're gods and we forgot, Oh, I love that. Can we get that printed on our future AFES t-shirts? We are gods and we forgot. Jason yes. Silva. Love that. Love that. Okay, so this is a question from Henrik Surinen. Henrik's a game developer, has a huge gaming company. He says, what are the most promising uses of AI for you? You know what would be amazing is if you see a film like The Matrix, and instead of seeing The Matrix as a prison for your mind you see the technology underlying that simulacrum as potentially utopia for our minds. Terrence McKenna talks about us moving into the imagination. Like, I wouldn't mind, like, virtual reality is indistinguishable from the real in which I get to get on a starship and go through black holes and see other dimensions and be like Jodie Foster at the end of Contact. Like, I want to have those experiences. Like, I want to witness celestial events. I want to see the unseen And I wouldn't mind if like Chris Nolan could create a virtual reality experience powered by AI that takes me to ineffable realms of such sublime beauty that it makes my heart explode in the best kind of way. So I want to deploy AI to make new forms of beauty and art, basically. And if you look at where AI is going, where computing power is going, Mm -hmm. you spoke about exponential rise in technology. Yeah. And if you look at the age of the universe and how long other civilizations other than humankind has been around, do you think we could be living in a simulation? Potentially, yeah. Have you heard of the transcension hypothesis? No, I have not. So the transcension hypothesis was a theory put out by the guy called John Smart, who was very smart. And it aims to account for Fermi's paradox. Do you guys know what Fermi's paradox is? Basically, for those that don't know, is... The conditions for life are there. The universe is infinite in scale. There's been an almost infinite amount of time for other technologically advanced civilizations to get to our level and exceed it. And so where is all the evidence? Why is it so quiet? That's Fermi's paradox. And the transcension hypothesis proposes that two things happen when a civilization is developing. It starts an outward expansion, like conquer the next continent and go to the moon, etc. But there's also this inner expansion, which is denser and denser and denser computational substrates. The supercomputer that was this, the supercomputer that's now this, the supercomputer that will be the blood cell size device in your body. And eventually when we get to femtoscale computing, which is like smaller than the smallest you can possibly imagine. So he imagines that 
femtoscale densities of computation, which is black hole-like dimensions of computation, running virtual universes in those computational substrates, and us eventually leaving our bodies and downloading consciousness into these computational substrates that are femtoscale densities, that essentially civilizations that are advanced realize it's more optimal to send sentience and consciousness and disappear out of the visible universe through these black hole-like dimensions, femtoscale density computations. So we abandon the outward expansion and we implode into the end of time. We leave space and time inwardly. That's transcension. And, and so he says that's where all the technologically advanced civilizations went. They went in and disappeared from space and time. And to quote you, we literally then become gods. Yeah, sure. So David Bonami says, what is your opinion on meditation? I did a session before today's talk, and I had one of the best talks, I think, in a while. So I think it's wonderful, no doubt. I mean, the science backs it up. In terms of my own practice, I think I have meditative outlets and meditative activities, even though they're not always like the traditional meditation ceremony. Like for me, watching movies is meditative. For me, taking showers is meditative. For me, listening to music and staring at the horizon is meditative. For me, cannabis can be very meditative. But the truth is that traditional meditation practices have been a bit more difficult for me because I like to be like carried away into the meditative state rather than like cultivating it with like focus. I struggle with it. So like it's easier if a film just bewitches and captures me and takes me away rather than if I sit with my eyes closed, it's a little bit harder. But that maybe means I'm undisciplined. But I also hear you now dating a meditation instructor, someone you met at Burning Man, so maybe that might help. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Now, Kent Weed, who's the creative American ninja warrior, Kent's here in the audience, he says, as flow is fleeting, any suggestions for entering flow or sustaining flow or or? Yeah, well, Kotler talks a lot about flow cycles, so there has to be an understanding of the neurochemistry, and certainly you can have, like, adrenal fatigue. Like, you can't have flow all the time, unfortunately. So you have to get really comfortable, I think, with rest. You have to get really comfortable with coming out of flow and how to protect yourself, nourish yourself, and love yourself when you're not in that space. Don't have impossible expectations for you to stay high all the time, at least until we get to this point where we can transform our self-systems from the leaky buckets into chalices, For me, the main thing is to get good sleep every night. I find nothing is more rejuvenating than sleep. And sleep is tricky for me because it means I have to downregulate my nervous system leading up to sleep. Because if I'm super stimulated, I'm not relaxed. So it's what are the rituals? The way that I eat, the way that I take a bath, the way that I shower, the way that I unwind, all of these things to downregulate my nervous system enough to sleep. And then really sleep. And then my mornings, my exercise routines, the way I sip coffee, the way I read emails, like all of these things are creating a space that's non-agitating so that I just feel great by the time I'm ready to press the button on whatever the flow trigger is. And the flow and the awe triggers are different for everybody. Novelty is a pretty universal flow trigger. So like new experience tend to hurl you into the present. Flow follows focus. So anything that you're focused on will potentially induce flow. Novelty, travel, interesting, engaging material risk can boost flow. You know, there's that new documentary called Free Solo about the craziest free climber on the planet. And that guy, the only way he gets flow is if he's hurling himself like off a mountain with no rope at the risk of death. My brother skydives twice a week. That's his flow. So different people have different That's awesome, Jason. So this is a really cool question from Dr. Peter Foster. She's a physicist researching fusion. She's here in the audience. And Dr. Peter Foster asks, Does Jason believe the exponential rate of development of technology 
will be fast enough to save the planet from global warming, pollution, destruction of biodiversity, etc. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. I mean, we could fix all those things now if we had the will. Just in terms of solar power, the sensors that extract power from the sun are advancing exponentially all the time. And Larry Page and Ray Kurzweil already created a plan for how to get all the energy that we could ever need and then some from the sun right off the bat. Extreme poverty has almost been completely eliminated across the world. I don't know if people know that. There's a host of indicators put out by a guy called Hans Rosling, who recently passed away, that show the progress that we've made across every measurable indicator of quality of life. The global warming thing, for sure, needs to be addressed. But it's really an issue of will at this point. It's not an issue of capacity. So what are the two or three biggest problems facing the planet right now? And by planet, I mean not just the ecology, but humankind as well, that you wish scientists and engineers and entrepreneurs would pursue and try to fix nationalism i'm not a big fan of you know right on totally yeah i think what we need is to find ways of scaling the overview effect you know what astronauts have when they see the earth from space that ontological shift and i'm not saying like put lsd in the water supply (laughs) because it could backfire you don't know the demons that people have you know like but i do think that Maybe it's VR, you know, maybe it's new forms of storytelling. Maybe it's a new generation of leadership. You know, I remember when Obama was first campaigning, that felt like a surge of optimism that, wow, like, you know, but we have our demons. Some say that right now we're, this is like a dying generation that's in power right now a little bit, you know, and that the young people are ready to make a big shift. Just have to be a little bit patient. But I think we need to scale a shift in consciousness. But we need to be careful when we do that, because if we become proselytizers or overzealous or self-righteous, then we risk becoming as bad as those that we're trying to usurp. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. That really impresses me. Now, here's a question from DJ Trotsky. Can you tell us a bit about your journey to this point? How did your life and experience lead you to where you are today? I needed to find an antidote to my anxiety surrounding mortality. I would say that's the prime mover for me. Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death, 1974 Pulitzer Prize winning book, distills the human condition to the fact that we are paralyzed by the fact that we are aware that we are mortal. So it's this notion not that, oh, there's a lion over there that's going to eat me, but that no matter what we do, no matter who we love, like there's this ticking time bomb. And we've had different ways of assuaging this anxiety from the religious impulse and the romantic impulse and the creative impulse. They're all responses to mortality. Mythology is a response to mortality. I think when I really contemplated losing the people that I loved, I found it intolerable. And everything I do is my way of raging against the dying of the light. So you're such an advocate of technology. Mm -hmm. But one of the questions we got is about AI. Right. So this is from Leila Al-Khadri, and she says, transhumanism raises for me the question of sovereignty and freedom. Mm. Consciousness is an intrinsic essence. When we bring AI that's controlled by a minority that designs and develops it, aren't we risking our ability to wake up? Mm. That's a very good question for sure. There's a guy called Tristan Harris. You guys probably know him. That has become a big mouthpiece for the problem that we have of social media being designed to hack our attention and turning us into products for advertisers and so on and so forth. And I think the problem is one of incentive, honestly. 
So if we are incentivized to use tools for the commercial exploitation of virginal minds ripe for consumerism, that's not always the best thing. At the same time, you know, I like to believe that even when these tools are designed to hack our attention, like if we have a little bit of discipline and a little bit of agency, we can decide how we use these tools. Like what's your information diet? How do you curate how you use these tools? Do you turn off the notifications so they don't freaking bother you all the time? Like, do you post stuff that's inspiring? Do you follow not trolls on Twitter, but like inspirational thinkers who will serendipitously post something that might inspire you to change your life? Like, we're not mindless slaves. We have agency, we have creativity, and we have the capacity to use these tools in the right way. Like, we can either eat until we have diabetes, or we can feed ourselves a nutritional diet. And it's the same with our tools and technologies, and it'll be the same with AI, I believe. So, healthy intent asks, what would your advice be for parents of kids which are being brought up in this rapidly changing world? You know, I'm excited about some of the breakthrough transformations happening in education. I would turn people to like the work of Sir Ken Robinson. I have some friends in Dubai who are creating a company called the Awe Academy. So the Awe Academy wants to create a generation of cosmological thinkers and teach people existential intelligence as they think that this is the kind of intelligence we need to cultivate for the new generation. You know, in Finland, I think they're pioneering new education models that instead of teaching people subjects, they teach people projects. And to solve this project, you have to deploy all these different subject matters. So it's a more holistic approach to education. I myself, my elementary was Montessori. So I've always been a fan of that. So yeah, I would encourage parents to see what's going on. There's a lot of innovation happening for sure. That's really cool. Now, this is the final question. Okay. This is from Ines K. Jones. And she said, and I think we all loved Jason's redefinition of the word billionaire, right? Ines said, what are your suggestions for our first steps to become billionaires and impact a billion lives or more? Go on a truth-seeking journey. <laughs> Elizabeth Gilbert in Eat, Pray, Love, who I adore, has this wonderful idea. I don't know if it was in the book or in the Julia Roberts movie, but I remember it from the movie. She talked about this notion of quest physics or the physics of the quest. And the idea was that if you're willing to go on a truth-seeking journey and you're willing to treat everybody that you meet as a potential teacher and you're willing to treat every experience as a learning lesson, then the truth will not be withheld from you. So it's a very poetic way of saying, take that leap of faith, take the Joseph Campbell hero's journey, like answer the call. And also you don't need a map, you need a compass. And so that's the other thing that I would tell people. That is awesome. Please give a big round of applause Thank to Jason Silva. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Please leave us a review. Mention Jason Silva's name. I can't wait to hear from you. And don't forget to tune in next week for the Mind Valley podcast. Now, one more small thing. Many of you who are my podcast listeners may not know this, but I am a writer. I actually started out as a writer before I started out as the host of this podcast. My book, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, was the number one book in Amazon and a New York Times bestseller. And because I'm a writer, I love to share my ideas and the mentors I'm learning from and new biohacks, the consciousness hacks on my primary writing platform, which is Instagram. What I've actually found is that Instagram allows you to write in a really concise way to get the idea across because it's limited to 2,200 characters. So if you would like to go further with me and explore some of the other ideas I'm throwing around in my consciousness, follow me on Instagram. Go to instagram.com at vision and check out some of the articles, posts, and videos 
on my Instagram and know that I actually check my Instagram messages myself. And this is the best way you can reach me. So go ahead, follow me on Instagram. Don't forget to leave a comment. I read every comment and I will see you next week on the Mind Valley podcast. Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.